0: You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. They will be posted there every week. This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. If you're watching on YouTube, I started to break these videos out into segments. So we start with an intro, kind of a crew update, then we jump into the new segments, and then the third section we finish with a deeper dive this week in which we're talking about ideas to fix Montana's elk management. With that, here's what we have going on this week. Myself, I took a little break from outdoor activities and attended a wedding. It was a good time to catch up with some old friends, hang out, and celebrate. Uh, But back in the office, we had the luxury of eating some of Randy's mountain goat from last fall. Shannon Waters from Gastronome heard us talking about how tough mountain goat meat was, and she took it as a challenge. She took a mountain goat neck roast home and braised it for 12 hours and turned it into some tamales, brought them back to the office. Super tasty. Shannon is a chef who also has worn many other hats within the food-related industry, Uh, but she owns and operates Gastronome, which is located here in Bozeman. They make ridiculously good dehydrated meals. They use super high quality ingredients. They spend a ton of time testing each recipe, making sure they rehydrate well. Uh, Without a doubt, the best dehydrated meals I've ever had. Very high quality product. I'll put a link in the description if you wanna check out the website. Yeah, highly recommend it. Dale is currently out of the office chasing bears. We've seen a few updates from him in the field and he is seeing some bears, so that is exciting. We're gonna have to get the full report when he gets back. Matthew continues to catch some more salmon out on the coast. Uh, looks super fun, super tasty, but for the fishing report here, I'm going to toss it over to Michael and what he's dubbing the fishing corner.
1: It's Michael back here in the fishing corner. Um, last weekend, we went to the Missouri, my girlfriend and I, and did wind up catching some fish on dry flies, which is really cool. The BWO hatch was happening, and uh, we caught some fish on some dry flies, which is super cool. But... Uh, Rivers are starting to go down. It's kind of weird here because they're all blown out last week. Now they're starting to trickle down and become that beautiful green color where you can catch them on stoneflies. But uh, this weekend I'm going to Fort Peck. I think that it'll be close to 80 days by the end of the weekend. So um, still chugging along, learning a bunch of stuff, catching different species. Caught my first uh, fish out of the backyard last night, which was huge because I've been waiting and wondering where these fish have been, and uh, finally got two out of the backyard last night, which is pretty cool. But that's it from the fishing corner. Uh, back to you, Marcus. On to a few news stories. A moose study
0: in Maine has shown that winter ticks are responsible for killing 60 out of 70 moose calves that they have collared. It's crazy to think that a tiny little parasite as small as a tick can kill an animal as big as a moose. Uh, but The winter ticks have been increasing nemesis for moose, especially in the southern extent of their range. These ticks will latch onto moose, sometimes tens of thousands at a time, and they'll kill them through anemia, basically sucking them dry. Uh, Not a pretty way to go. These moose also try to rub the ticks off, scraping off a lot of their hair in the process, uh, giving them this really mangy look. Sometimes they call it ghost moose, Um, and moose are generally pretty scraggly looking when they're shedding their winter coats and going to their summer coats but researchers have started to notice this happening earlier and earlier, sometimes even noticing moose rubbed in January, so not good. Uh, In the Northeast US, numbers of ticks have skyrocketed, creating a lot of issues related to this. Adult moose can withstand a decent tick load, but these calves, as shown by the study, don't fare as well. Warming temperatures and shorter cold seasons are having a big impact on these tick survivals. Uh, One good cold snap or a good blanket snow often kills these larvae, but when you have less of these cold events occurring, more ticks survive, more ticks find the hosts in the the moose. One hypothesis is also that the moose density is so high in certain areas that it's creating this large pool of hosts and allowing the ticks to spread easier. Also, management of the commercial forest has, has created really good moose habitat and there's no main predator in that area, so the moose population has also increased a lot compared to historic levels. Now you have this tick acting as a predator in this situation bringing the moose population back down so one of the things they're looking at in the study is that if they reduce adult moose through hunting can they create a healthier herd overall uh, basically they separated the study area into two sections one spot they have the original regulations the same level of hunting pressure and the other they have liberalized seasons more moose tags given out seeing if they reduce density back down will it create a healthier moose population it'll be really interesting to see the effect of this study. Uh, definitely going to be one that I'm following along with. The Fish and Wildlife Service just released a revised proposal for Mexican wolf management, which includes removing the previous population cap. So Currently, there's believed to be around 196 Mexican wolves living in the United States. So, this new proposal will also restrict permits for killing wolves which are preying on livestock, making it more difficult for ranchers and wildlife agencies to get depredation permits. From what I can tell, people are upset about this decision for various reasons. Some hunters and livestock producers have voiced concerns about increased pressures on game animals and livestock, uh, while on the flip side, you have members of environmental groups who don't think the proposal went far enough. They want Fish and Wildlife Service to conduct more releases of adult wolves into the wild. Jim Heffelfinger recently gave a talk on Mexican wolf recovery at Texas Tech. It's on YouTube. I'll put a link in the description. But he gives some really good information on the whole story of the recovery effort, how we got to where we are now. Jim was on the Mexican wolf recovery team from 2010 to 2013. He actually resigned from that team due to what he thought was poor science. But then again, Jim was on a different wolf recovery team Uh, that put out a report in 2017 that's kind of used as the blueprint for Mexican wolf recovery currently. So what I have found is there's a lot of controversy surrounding the various topics and facets of this story. Uh, There are people who disagree with Jim and his colleagues and their science, uh, but Jim has then written rebuttals and to, to those people's responses, it's been a very interesting back and forth. Anyway, mostly we can agree on that historic Mexican wolf populations existed throughout Mexico moving into the southern U.S. and Arizona, southern Arizona and New Mexico. About 90% of their range existed in Mexico and 10% existed in the United States. There are groups that are pushing to reestablish Mexican wolves in the United States without working with wildlife managers in Mexico, which is kind of interesting. They are also pushing to move recovery areas further north, some wanting to connect the northern population of gray wolves with the southern population of Mexican wolves. It does seem to be the common consensus that the gray wolves in the north are genetically distinct from the Mexican wolves in the south, but some argue that you could have this gradient of genetics working from north to south that kind of change over that latitude. Uh, But Jim and his colleagues argue that the larger northern subspecies would likely swamp the Mexican wolf genetics if they were to come into contact. Uh, The larger canines would likely get those dominant breeding positions and just swamp out the Mexican wolf genetics. Um, So the recovery team was tasked with recovering the Mexican wolf, not just wolves. Many of Jim's points focused on recovering Mexican wolves in the appropriate areas and the best methods in which to do that. They have habitat suitability models which show where the best habitat exists, which kind of follows that historic range of most of the suitable habitat being in Mexico with the Southern parts of Arizona and New Mexico also providing suitable habitat. Many of the criticisms coming in argue that the wolf recovery plan doesn't do enough to address the genetic issues, saying that the wild population will be inbred without some outside influence. However, Jim explains their plan to address this by using what they call a cross-fostering program. Basically, they take captive bred wolf pups and they put them into the dens of the wild wolf pups with their current litter. And they've documented success of 30 to 40% of these cross-fostered pups reaching breeding age, which is a similar level to what the normal wild pups are anyway. So Jim and his colleagues have been working with wildlife managers in Mexico to recover wolves there as well. They know there are around 40 wolves currently alive in Mexico, but there's also a lot less known about the status because many of the areas are controlled by the cartel. Um, I thought it was interesting, a little funny, terrifying at the same time. Uh, Jim called this cartel conservation because there are large swaths of land that basically no one is allowed to go into creating a de facto refuge. Anyway, this whole story is fascinating. I find it super interesting. I highly encourage you to listen to Jim's talk, which is linked below. Montana elk, real fun, really complicated. Last week we talked about the recent lawsuit filed against Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. This week Randy is jumping in to give some ideas on how we actually go about fixing elk management in Montana. So we're jumping into some ideas on how do we address elk management in Montana? Because oh. if elk management's seemingly broken in a lot of respects. Oh, man. How do we? How do we? How do we fix it? Because they have the Montana Elk Citizen Ad- Advisory Committee, Bo- committee and yeah. then there's PLPW, Private Land Public Wildlife, working on it. There's the elk Staff management
2: Pl- plan committee
0: yeah and the elk well so the and that the elk management plan again is how old now Two, 2003.
2: 2003 well no it was we worked on in 2003 and 4 and adopted in 2005. so okay. we're seven years past its expiration date
0: mm-hmm. we had several people email in some ideas to mm-hmm. to fix elk management mm-hmm. but uh Anyway, I'm curious what you think, because I think one of the big ones that I like, and I I mean, I don't know the answer, but one of the things that I think is an interesting idea to address some of the problem is revamping and changing up block management. Mm-hmm. And block management in Montana is our public access program yep. where FWP with licensed dollars primarily funds uh, they, they pay landowners to allow public access. Right. But there's a lot of different uh, sideboards to it there's a lot of things that are kind of stuck i think within the block management program so that's one of my ideas but i'm curious i know you have a lot of I've got a lot f- of ideas i got four pages here four pages If that counts for anything yeah. i'm
2: getting ready to i'm trying to get this done before i leave town so i can send it to the committee all right uh i've been on the phone with a couple of them uh but uh, to your point of block management that's one of my comments too is don't tie elk management tools to trying to leverage private land access Attempts to use access within management have failed in Montana. We have an access program called Block Management. Right. If that's not working to get us access to elk, fix that program. Don't do all these crazy workarounds and other goofy stuff. Right. We have access and we have management. Decide which ones they are. Yeah. And fix whatever it's it's supposed to do. So. That was kind of my thought on on the block management one. Uh, Here's my, uh, I don't know if this really works here, but I'm I'm kind of giving a preface to how I think this should be approached. Uh, we, We need to identify where can hunting even be an effective tool? Yeah. So focus on those areas. Don't waste the time, the resources, and the goodwill among us and landowners trying to solve problems that are created by inaccessible elk.
0: Yeah, because there's some landowners who will, they don't want to allow public access, they're okay with the elk being on their property. Yep. Or, I mean, if I don't know, there's, so they, it, and then everywhere in between, there's people that, you mm-hmm. know, want all the elk off of their property, and then there's people who are perfectly happy hosting 2,000 yep. elk year round on their ranch right
2: so in those instances let's identify what we have we don't have an elk problem we have a neighbor problem right fwp is not in the business hunters are not in the business of solving neighbor problems let's focus on true elk problems right people not allowing anybody to but i i guess let me restate that landowners who opt out of any type of solutions with their neighbors or with the agency or with hunters, that's fine. It's their property, they can do whatever right, they want. Yeah. But the entire system isn't supposed to be reorbited to address their decision to opt out. Mm-hmm. So let's focus on the things we can. This one's going to be really, Are you ready for the heat that's I'm, gonna come I'm
0: with this? I'm ready, well, let's hear it. Shorten elk seasons in Montana. Which is the opposite direction that we've been going the last few years yep. they have we can hunt elk in montana six months of the year or a lot more of in more some time. cases yeah yeah which is so crazy
2: here's my comment we currently have the longest seasons of any western state as our seasons have gotten longer and longer the problem has gotten worse and worse mm-hmm. hello <laughs> <laughs> there are studies and i've read them that indicate that the longer over over a longer period of time year after year that elk are pressured the more they are attracted to private lands that are void of any hunting pressure
0: right you're training them you're essentially creating a, habit, a permanent habit Yep. For them to stay in those areas where they're not going to get killed. Yeah. And it makes sense.
2: Your point of calling it permanent permanent is super important because these aren't elk now that are just going there for a couple months. Mm -hmm. Over years and years of these longer and longer and longer seasons on public land, these elk are exactly what you said. Permanent, habituated residents of private land.
0: Right. And so I think the... Playing devil's ad advocate here, mm-hmm. somebody will respond with a lot of those shoulder seasons are private land only. Mm-hmm. So can you explain how it's still... Like, cause mm-hmm.
2: the, because if we then... So everyone wants to look at it as public and private. Right. Okay. We know that the shoulder seasons, for the most part, they're not supposed to be on public, but they're expanding to that. Yeah. But let's just look at the private part. Well, within the private, you have those who are willing, you know, want to participate, want to be in solutions, and those who don't, right. So if you just go and then hammer all these elk here, all they do is move over to the sanctuary ranches that don't allow it. They say, I'm not going to be part of the shoulder season. Mm -hmm. So they go over there, they're off limits. And what happens? They come back as quick as the shoulder season ends.
0: So rather than looking at it as public-private elk, you want to look at it as accessible versus non-accessible right. elk. Yeah. yeah.
2: Who are who are the willing participants? Because Montana has a ton of super high-quality landowners who've been trying to be part of the system. Yeah. And they want to do whatever they can to be, if you want to call it, the good neighbor to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. But when new people come in, and in terms of acreage, they're acquiring huge... Numbers of acres. Right. And their property values are increased by having super abundant elk. And they bought these for the sake of, I want to go elk hunting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: That's a completely different incentive than the person who is making a living on this ranch. So we need to get away from the dynamic of public versus private as the only way to look at this. Within the private sectors, we have to start looking at. Where are the places where people are trying and where are the people who just opted out? Mm -hmm. And if they opt out, you know what, you're being a bad neighbor, there's, among those landowners, they're gonna have to sort that out because that's not something fish, wildlife, and parks can do. We can't, I mean, I would never support something that forces hunters on private land. Mm -hmm. So if someone doesn't want hunting as the tool, that's their right, but where does that leave us as other tools then?
0: Yeah, it yeah, does exactly so
2: that's not a specific idea or policy. Uh, here's one that's on my list. Eliminate shoulder seasons. They they started out as a short-term experiment and the effectiveness was going to be analyzed before it expanded. Right. As quick as that legislative session ended, it was shoulder seasons for everybody. With so we had the expansion happen, but we didn't have the analysis of any effectiveness. So we're now five or six years into shoulder seasons. The problem has just gotten worse. The concentrations of elk on inaccessible lands is just, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: it's exacerbated. So why, why do we have it? Let's yeah. not pretend it's working. It's not working. Then I this is another one I, I submitted to this when the, the state was doing their uh, season setting this winter. Private land only, antlerless elk tags.
0: Right. Which, if I remember right, didn't there was someone who kind of proposed that, but it didn't get shut down. Mm-hmm. Do you remember exactly what the reasoning...
2: The reasoning was that, well, it... <laughs> I, I think it was too good of a solution, and it didn't get them to where they wanted it, which was bull elk tags.
0: And that's, yeah, I think that's the other thing too, is what we need so, to be beating around the bush here. But, like, a lot of the pressure is to get more bull elk tags which with the you know the supposed issue is we have too many elk right Mm -hmm. bull elk tags don't do anything about too many elk
2: right and so uh, that's in my comment (laughs) our problem is not with too many elk on public land it's the concentration of elk on private lands at certain times yeah many landowners want relief from the elk when the elk are present I suggest replacing shoulder seasons with unlimited numbers of cow elk tags available for use on private land only.
0: Statewide, or at least within the districts with, that are... Are over objective. objective. Yeah,
2: And then try to make those available for the most part in the general season when people are hunting on public. Yeah, That way, if they do go in there, because a lot of these landowners will do this, they want these out of their hay meadows. Right. Well, if they start hammering them, guess where the elk are gonna go? They're gonna go on to public where they're accessible. Yeah. So let's not have season dates that create almost like this same disconnection that the private landowner who opts out. By not having pressure all across the landscape at the same time, elk just go to the places where it's not there. So Mm -hmm. private land only tags would be a great tool For those landowners who need it Mm -hmm. now this one again is this gets more into crop damage and and depredation or whatever you want to call it we have landowners who are incurring significant property damage crop damage Mm -hmm. when hunting seasons aren't open yeah and i know this is going to be controversial but i think we have to look at what is hunting and what is damage control treat them as two separate things Gotcha. So if we have elk out in a cornfield, out in the, you know, eastern Montana river bottoms, mm-hmm. they are destroying corn. I mean, right. if you've ever seen elk in a cornfield, that's a problem. Right. And that's happening in July or August. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Well, and so Montana currently has game damage hunts. Right. So, which is separate from shoulder <clears throat> season, which is separate right. from the general season. Right. So what do you think, are you thinking game damage, like under that same program, it needs to be run differently,
2: I guess? No, I'm saying do them and use them for precision. Not just like, oh, well, yeah. And this is probably going to upset some people, but I don't really care who goes in and does the hunting under game damage seasons. I'm starting to hear a lot of complaints that hey, you have these hunt rosters, or you have whatever, and you send people out here and they don't have the experience or skills to know how to get rid of some of these elk. I hate to say that, but if that's true, why are we sending people out there to do a job
0: if they're maybe not the right person? But do you think that that, in my mind, that immediately comes to mind is the ability of that to be abused. If you allowed the landowner to just shoot elk when they're damaging mm-hmm. their property mm-hmm. at any time of the year, right. I mean, that opens up a lot of window for abuse. Right, it
2: does. And so that, that's why, you know, one thing Montana in our term of simplification, Yeah, we've tried to act like managing elk should be just easy. Oh, let's just make a one size fits all. That's not gonna work. Yeah, We have to work harder at this. We can't say what's good for the elk in region one in Northwest Montana is the same thing that's good for the elk in region seven right or the landowners in region 1 and the landowners in region 7 this is actually going to require thought and work and these damage seasons are part of that you know they, to prevent those abuses that i agree certainly yeah. could happen it's going to take some work but the majority of landowners just want the elk out of there right they're they're not there saying boy how can i uh, is there some way I can finagle this program to my benefit? So.
0: Yeah, I think uh, where it starts to get interesting is yeah with, with bull elk mm-hmm. particularly. Right. I mean, that, it's, you're talking mm-hmm. money, you're talking irrational behavior. People mm-hmm. go crazy over bull right. elk. And that's and why so,
2: in, in yeah. some states that have these depredation programs, it's actually a drawing for bull elk gotcha. in depredation hunts. As a general rule, if you go in there and start popping at these cow elk, the whole group's getting out right. of there. It's not like the bull elk are gonna stand around and say, oh, I know you don't have a tag for me. No, they're yeah, they're getting out of there too. Yeah. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of ways that we could make some improvements that could happen pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. There's always someone who's quote unquote, ox is gonna be gored or Their bowl is going to be gored maybe in this case. But I think we got to be true about what we're trying to accomplish. Are we trying to control elk numbers Mm -hmm. to some number that's tolerable for these landowners that are definitely having impacts? Or are we just trying to get more bull elk tags for people who came and bought property under knowing that this is how things work. They buy the property and then it's like, oh, let's change the law. Let's change the regulation. Yeah. No. If you bought property, you bought it, knowing how Montana's been doing it forever. Right. We're, we're gonna do the smart things, we're gonna do what's best for the land and the elk and hunting, but the whole thing isn't gonna be pivoted to orbit around some new folks who showed up here and want the law changed because they want more bull tags. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's, I, I think it's less about programs and it's more about saying, what are we really trying to do here?
0: Right. Well, in my mind, one of the, I mean, this is a pretty simple, simplistic way of looking at it is a lot of the hunter, there's plenty of people who would like to kill these elk. Mm-hmm. They just don't have access to them. Right. And so that's why I think revamping block management would uh, be an, a very attractive option. And so, like, I wrote down a ton of stuff of things that I can—I think it could improve on, mm-hmm. and I don't know the, the answer for sure, but... In my mind, if you just make block management more appealing to the landowners somehow, I mean, Mm -hmm. and money talks, like that's the (laughs) reality of it, so, and whatever, I I mean, I feel like they need, block management needs to hire really good block management coordinators. It should be a very, like, highly paid position to develop relationships with ranchers and Mm -hmm. work together to create an, a public access program that works for both the state and for the landowner. right? Because I feel like there's a lot of stipulations, and I mean, you, which need to be in place so it doesn't get abused by any mm-hmm. one party, but I feel like having access programs in the areas of need, like elk, like let's focus on elk. Because right, right now, so much block management, I don't know how many tens of thousands of acres are just stubble fields, which it's like, what? Well, let, maybe let's reallocate some of this right. towards where we're having the most issues. Mm -hmm. And and the reality of a lot of the funding comes from license sales of elk. Big game, yeah. Non-resident like elk elk licenses, so why don't we reallocate those towards areas that that would actually help solve the issue?
2: Yeah, that has been presented to the PLPW in 2000, the Private Land Public Wildlife Committee, another committee that's working on, supposedly working on, well they work on a lot of things, but maybe they're working on elk. But they have, the block management program's kind of been their purview. I think it was 2015 they asked me to come and do a presentation of all the state access programs with private lands that I'd been familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I did a ton of research. I talked to all of the program managers in Wyoming, in Idaho, in Kansas even, Arizona. A lot of these states looked at Montana because we were kind of the first one. They're like, that's a great idea. But they've taken it to newer and more creative places. Montana, right. we're, we were the first ones to do it, but we're still kind of in that same mode. So Wyoming would be a great example That's to look at. Because they scored the system based on what access you have to the wildlife, but also what adjacent public lands could that open access to. Right. And that gets scored higher. And they don't have nearly the low dollar number caps mm-hmm. that we have in Montana. So. If, if you think about really good elk hunting, how is block management that's capped, I think, at $12,000? Yeah. Going to compete for high-quality elk when an outfitter will come and pay 40000
0: Right. Yeah, and to me, it just seems like there's a huge focus on acreage and not necessarily access to wildlife. It's like, right. okay, so here's 20,000 acres that has three pheasants and one antelope on it or here's 400 acres that has elk that run through it every single day. Right. It's like, which one's more valuable? Yeah. And so that's, I, I feel like the ranking criteria needs to be adjusted mm-hmm. for sure on what, is, what should be block management, what should, or you know. Yeah. And, and also developing relationships with ranchers, because I've heard right. stories of, you know, block management coordinators that just don't know how to talk to a landowner And have lost, essentially lost access because of their inability to communicate and develop a plan and like come up with a solution that works for everyone. And so that's a huge issue in my mind. Like it needs to be a very serious thing where you can actually communicate with one another and come up with ideas. And then that's, I think, and I think it's got, I I feel like it has gotten better in terms of allowing landowners to come up with some Mm -hmm. more sideboards rather than like, Let's allow everybody. Like, there's daily sign-ins, and as many people as want to sign up can possibly sign up. That doesn't really work for you know some of these smaller properties that might have really good, high-quality hunting, but right. it, realistically only you know five people max should be hunting that property a day. And so there there are some programs or some of the block management areas you can restrict access to a certain number a day. But I feel like yeah, um,
2: I- Uh, the block management program needs to take into consideration landowner concerns more than it does. Yes. Because when we have this acreage, got to let everybody blah, blah, blah. There's no management at that point. When all of a sudden you're sending 200 people on a small parcel every week. Yeah. The management part of that is out the window. So the incentives to the landowner in our program need to be looked at. In Wyoming, and I hate to keep going back to that but they've got a very similar landowner pattern yeah they have a very similar uh population of wildlife and by species and everything else like we do with with elk and they have figured it out the value they get out of their program per dollar spent, if you equate that to number of days of elk hunting or high quality deer hunting is remarkable and they work at it Mm-hmm. I, I mean, one of the problems with all of our big acreage goals we have under our block management, we get to the lowest common denominator, and we, it, that isn't going to work for elk. So right. We do have programs. We, we have a great program, block management, that yeah. could be an access tool. Yeah. We just got to tweak it more, maybe more than just tweak. Change it so that it's a useful tool when it comes to getting access to elk.
0: Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot to be done uh, or, I mean, that could be done. I think could help address it. And, yeah. um,
2: I got three more pages. Let's, let's go. Want. Let's, no. I want to hear another, I want to hear another <laughs> point. I want to hear some more
0: oh, ideas. I'm, I'm,
2: <laughs> no, I, I, for me, uh, the health management plan is a big thing. We yeah. have to update this health management plan and, and it needs to be updated in the context of where we are today, not where we were in 2003 because we've had so many things change as far as the, what I call, new age out of state landowner mm-hmm. and the working landowner. Right. The, the new age guy, gal, controls way more acreage than they did when this plan was, was set up. We've had changes in habitat, changes in elk behaviors, changes in development of winter range and other stuff. We have to start updating that plan regularly. The objectives in some places could go up, and maybe there'll be an argument of some places they need to go down. Mm -hmm. But without having that debate and that discussion, this elk management plan is, well, it's collecting dust. (laughs) And and so if you get into the details of that, then you get into, should we even be counting elk when we're measuring objectives? Should we count elk that are inaccessible?
0: Right. Yeah, if they're spending their entire year on a ranch and there's no public access to them whatsoever. Right. Yeah, should that be counted in the hunting district.
2: Yeah, the other thing that eventually Montana's gonna have to wrestle with is our landowner program. We give away 15% Mm -hmm. of our landowner tags or of our limited entry elk tags to landowners and we ask for nothing in return. We don't get higher objectives. We don't get management for elk, uh, you know, properties managed for elk we don't get access to adjacent or landlocked public lands. At the time when the program came in place, I think it was just a gratuitous, hey, we appreciate you guys. Yeah. But now it's, I, I, I have to ask, what's the public getting for that 15%? And how do we tweak and change that? And that's gonna open a whole new can of worms. Right. That,
0: but. Well, on top of, on top of the landowner, um, preference thing there's also the the 454 program right which is being pushed a lot more by the department and some mm-hmm. of these um, committees of like how do we change and revamp the 454 right. program to get more use out of it and what it is is it's essentially giving landowners permits bull, either sex bull, bull bull yep. permits either sex permits in exchange for public access but it to me it's like a so it's the yeah. ratio seems to change because I think right. it was the supposed to be the ratio
2: change a, went from one to them, four to the public, to one to three. To one,
0: yeah, one to three, and, and then, then the public is also defined as I don't understand who's selecting the public that's, members. That's the great because that's not fuzzy. that that's not it. I mean, and I get uh, like I think it. I don't think that's necessarily been abused, but in my mind, it could be open to oh, abuse yeah. because it's. I think it's mostly what I've seen quoted is it's going towards disabled people and mm-hmm. it's going towards uh youth hunters which is great yeah. Yeah. but it this seems like well how do you you know what if i have a my my kids a youth hunter or you know yeah. whoever somebody's kid is you know like how do i apply for that tag? Right. there's no application online mm-hmm. it's like you have to know somebody and yeah. so it's like what is this public access you speak of like there needs yeah. to be more transparency on right. where those people are coming from in my mind. And maybe it, it is more transparent. I just can't find information. No,
2: the transparency <laughs> builds trust. Yes. And the transparency of that program is very, very low. Yeah, And I think the department would be like, yeah, we could probably do a better job with that. I think the public's like, you better do a much better job with yeah. the transparency part of that program. So yeah, we got all kinds of different things, Montana has tried all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it wasn't the department's idea, it was a legislator's idea, or it wasn't Hunter's idea, it was this one, or sometimes it was, you know, whoever had an interest in trying to solve something, but it's, and then we can get into the whole Montana licensing program. Our licensing program for non-residents is a contributor towards this. We need to simplify that. That thing needs to be burnt down and rebuilt, but again, that's, That's a whole nother part, but licensing programs and the allocation of tags and how that happens Mm -hmm. ends up being a complicating part to these kind of situations. So, but I could go on and on.
0: So one thing I do want to address before we wrap it up. So Mm -hmm. multiple people emailed in, and um, I've heard this so many times as it keeps getting brought up of giving, for some reason, giving out landowner tags as a uh, method for um solving this in terms of like transferable landowner tags Mm -hmm. like this would help solve the problem can you explain like because in my mind there other states do that and i feel like montanans a lot of montanans have been very opposed to that can you articulate why transferable landowner tags are are not great and not a good idea for montana
2: yeah i I mean somewhat I, i could make a case that if if you look at New Mexico, yeah. you would say that's exactly what I would never want to be As in terms of mm-hmm. landowner tags. I would say some could make the case that if you look at Nevada, what Nevada gets for that very small percentage of tags they give to landowners, mm-hmm. they get access to adjacent public lands and landlocked public lands they get higher elk objectives. Nevada's elk objectives in their elk plan is now four times what it was when they started. So some could make the case that if you could find a way to tighten this up and keep it as agreed to
0: and not, you know, have this creep of, well, let's do this and let's do that. It seems like in Utah and New Mexico, probably Colorado to some extent too. Mm-hmm. It seems like it just continues oh, to, yeah. it's like it, once they got their foot in the door, it just keeps exactly. growing and growing and growing.
2: Mm-hmm. Now like Utah and Ranching for Wildlife in Colorado, they yeah. get to set their own season dates. So yeah. they're in there hunting bull elk with a rifle in September, and then the public gets to come in and mop up the joint. You know, one one public person gets to come for every 10 private hunters. Well, that's not how it started. It started like one-to-one ratio. So the it's a very controversial thing just because of how it's been abused in so many other states
0: yeah because nevada makes it look somewhat appealing Mm -hmm. if you can keep it at that level but it just it's uh, i uh, I don't know it makes me it makes me nervous every time i hear people talk about it i just don't i'm not nervous
2: about it it anymore i just think montana's got to look at it and say what are we getting for what we're currently giving away Mm -hmm. because Montanans can say, we got it all figured out because ours aren't transferable. Right. But we're giving away 15% of them. That's more than Wyoming gives away. That's more than Idaho gives away.
0: Yeah, so what are we getting out of the landowner preference program?
2: Yeah, and if if I'm a trustee of a public trust, and I'm a trustee of a lot of private trusts as a CPA, if I were to give away 15% of a trust asset, and I got nothing in return for it, I would be in court tomorrow. So if you're a public trustee in Montana, you better hope someone doesn't show up and say, hey, what are you getting me for that 15% that you're giving away?
0: Mm-hmm. It's because they're
2: not getting anything for it right now. Mm-hmm. Not higher objectives, not access to... I don't even care. I think most hunters have written off access to deeded private land. Yeah, They're like, if it's your land. Do what you want. We don't want access to that. Hunters are just trying to figure out ways, how do I get to the public land? That's why we see corner crossing cases in Wyoming. That's why so much emphasis on block management and other programs. Yeah. How do we get access? But if you don't wanna provide access, I don't think we should waste our time trying to-
0: Force it. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: So let's focus on, all right, where are elk accessible? Yep. And how do we manage for places where elk are accessible? And I think our, our task would be a whole lot easier it wouldn't be as easy for the complicators to come in and muddy the water and say, oh, there's too many elk, but yeah, we want more bull elk tags. I think us trying to solve problems that we really can't solve, Mm -hmm. like bad neighbor problems, drag us into these quagmires that get us to where we are today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we could talk about it forever, but I think nobody knows the real answer, which is why we're in such a pickle with this one. But yeah. No, I,
2: I, I appreciate you diving into this stuff, Marcus. I can't imagine some of the emails you're going to get afterwards.
0: Yeah. yeah. Bring but, it on. I'm curious what people's thoughts are. Yeah. So. If,
2: if Mark Twain said whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over, <laughs> well, he never saw elk on the <laughs> landscapes of Montana. I don't know. It's not even fighting. It's... Litigating, it's legislating, it's
0: yeah, yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. So, feel free to email us weekly at freshtracks.tv. Nope, weekly at freshtracks. Oh my god. Just, just put the thing. I'm down. just gonna write it right, on right the down thing here. There you go. Yeah, it is dot tv
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching. All right.